Welcome to the FedTech Innovator Podcast, bringing you the stories and journeys behind deep tech innovation and entrepreneurship. In each interview, we go behind the scenes with the entrepreneurs, scientists, and visionaries who are engineering the technologies of tomorrow, today. These journeys are unpredictable and full of learning, and whether you're an entrepreneur, researcher, or funder of innovation, our goal is to create a community where we can learn from each other as we all seek to change the world with technology. I'm Ben Solomon, and I'm the founder and managing partner of FedTech. Since 2015, we've been building a bridge between the R&D world and the venture world. Every year, we get to work with hundreds of companies and researchers who are changing the world through technology. In this podcast, we're going to share those stories with you from our friends and colleagues in deep tech. I'm coming to you from our headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, just across from the river from the nation's capital. Hi, everybody. We are excited to be here today with Asmud Karki. Um, Asmud, uh, recently we, we connected um, fellow Princeton alums, so we met through that network and was just really interested in Asmud's story. Of, he is um, based in Kathmandu, Nepal, uh, and is a player in the ecosystem there around entrepreneurship, um, as well as doing a lot of, so multiple companies uh, started. Uh, we'll hear more about that. Um, in addition to a lot of other very interesting work. So Asmud, yeah, just maybe um, introduce yourself and, and um, what's going on in, in Kathmandu right now. Uh, thanks, Ben. Uh, great meeting and thanks for the uh, warm intro. Also, hi, everyone. I'm a small. I'm from Nepal, based in Nepal at the moment. Uh, basically, my story in a nutshell is, you know, until high school, I was here, but very lucky. Uh, to go to campus in, in the States, be in Princeton. So from graduation, I came back to Nepal, uh, you know, had a brief stint in China after. And uh, since returning back from China in 2019, I've been largely working in the entrepreneurship ecosystem, largely consulting entrepreneurship research and tech operations, like, you know, uh, in different capacities. Why well, tell so we, we were joking earlier, you know, that people obviously like a, like myself think of Nepal in terms of, you know, mountains, uh, be, beautiful mountains. I think it's it's eight of the ten tallest uh, peaks are in, in Nepal. Um, I think about amazing food. We have some great Nepalese restaurants in in um, DC, but unfortunately, just my, that's my, my knowledge starts to tail off dramatically. I mean, give give us a little sense of. Nepal, where it sits in the world, where it sits, you know, in the the sort of course of, of its development journey, um, and, and just a little Nepal one on one would be helpful. Great, uh, you know that that's one of the hardest questions uh, I faced, like you know, uh, continue to face uh, because it's such a diverse country, right? A lot of times, I think Nepal is known for Mount Everest, uh, and sometimes maybe for its religion culture. Uh, but just to give one word to our listeners, uh, Nepal is a small country, I'd say, um, between India and China, located, located in South Asia. Uh, the population is around 30 million people, so uh, think of the size of a, a mid, mid-sized U.S. state. Uh, and the GDP is roughly the size of, for our U.S. listeners, uh, the size of Vermont, you know, more or less around 30, yeah. 35, 40 billion USD. Uh, so not a big country, well, a small country, uh, you know, it's a mountainous country for sure. Uh, it's up to, to its reputation that it's a mountainous country. But the interesting fact is around 50% of the population live on the plains which borders India. So it's a landlocked country. So there's India to the east, north, uh, west and south. 
and China to the north. So a lot of population actually live on the border, like the plains, uh, where uh, towards the part of India. So uh, that's not only the demographics and geographical part. Uh, as a country, you know, it's a pretty diverse country, more than 120 languages. Nepal is twenty languages. Wow. It's like that's that's recorded recorded, right? So if you go on official, that'll be much higher. Um pretty how, how many languages do most people uh, speak, you know, just if you if you walk around the city? So at least growing up, right? So at, if you live in say Kathmandu, any part, uh, I guess Nepali and Hindi, everyone speaks that Hindi because there's a huge influence of Indian movies, culture, the the subcontinent, the food. Uh, if you go to a private school, which increasingly many people do, you also speak English, right? So at least three languages. Uh, if I want to boast my skills, you know, because Hindi and Urdu are similar, not in writing, but speaking, you can see four languages. And then if you're from ethnic part of Nepal, you know, because uh, there's a lot of ethnic groups, usually you also speak your mother tongue. So at least three to five languages. Wow. Okay. Really neat. Um and, and and talk a little, I, I always think it's interesting, sort of these cu countries like Nepal that are in some ways nestled between countries that have very, you know, are, are, are larger, have very different kind of political climates, very different, you know, alliances. And so if you think about Nepal in terms of, of being between India and China, how does that manifest itself in just kind of the fabric of, of, uh, Nepali culture and, and, you know, even economics, I mean, what do you, what do you notice about being kind of in the middle there? Yeah, so uh, Nepal's history is also very uh, different, unique. Uh, so because it's located between two superpowers for like, you know, generations, uh, the way the country shaped our current uh, borders uh, is in relation to our superpower neighbors. Uh, so but generally, Nepal is very similar to uh, India. Our currency is picked, I mean, like we have a fixed exchange rate with India, like, you know, that really ties economy. We get uh, almost every drop of our oil and imports from majority from India, increasing from China also. Culturally, politically, people to people ties very close to India. Uh, but in uh, recent uh, decades, China is also playing a like there's a increasing uh, prominent role uh, in terms of foreign direct investment, uh, like people to people connections and everything and. Because there's uh, Tibet also, Nepal has historical trade ties. So Nepal actually used to be a trading route between India and China historically. And that's how Kathmandu really became a vibrant city, you know, 400 years back. Nowadays, not so much, but uh, very much influenced by uh, two of our neighbors in terms of trade, uh, religion, languages. Yeah, a lot of similarities. Well, and wh wh where do you... Um... I know that, that, that a lot of Nep Nepali, Nep Nepali, uh, Nepalese, um, you know, people leave and, and go and work in other countries. Is, is there kind of a more common approach to, to go and work in, you know, if you want to be a technology, uh, you know, a software engineer or technology entrepreneur or whatever it might be, is it easier to do that in, in India or, or China or where, where do people usually kind of migrate to? Yeah. So let me put that briefly in the historical context for our users. So Nepal, uh, Migration, like, you know, immigration has been a fabric of uh, Nepali social culture life. In the past, it used to be like, you know, traders uh, trading between India and China, like 300 years back. Around World War, when there was British Empire in India, it used to be martial laborers. You know, a lot of Nepal, Nepali actually, besides Mount Everest, also known for Gurkhas, right? The uh, fighters, like, you know, for our army. 
uh, and more in most recent years, uh, a lot of Nepal have been migrating, like you know, uh, to Middle East, uh, Malaysia, and increasingly to like you know, US, uh, Europe, and Australia. So that's the migration has been a fabric uh, of Nepali, uh, like you know, sociocultural life, uh, and it's so huge that uh, almost five million people. So this is a country of thirty million. So one in every six Nepali is outside the country, and these are youths. I was reading a report and every other household in Nepal has someone living outside the country. So migration is huge in the country. Uh, so it spreads across like socioeconomic strata, like, you know, across sectors. And tech is also one, one uh, increasingly the sector is growing in Nepal. And migration because of tech is also increasing. Because if you have tech skills, it's relatively easier, you know, for you to access opportunities outside. But we are, we are seeing two trends here, Ben. So starting a lot of people work in Nepali tech ecosystem, which is increasingly connected with the ecosystem in US, Australia, which has significant Nepali diaspora. So maybe start like, you know, uh, if you are semi-skilled, start in the Nepali tech ecosystem for one or two years and then go abroad for education or, or like, you know, really migrate where you have uh, uh, better opportunities, right? Because the ecosystem here is still nascent. So we're still, uh, starting to see that trend in Nepal. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and I want to hear again yeah, a moment just on a kind of what uh, what you see in, in in the Nepalese startup community. What what kind of made you come back? Right, because I think it's an interesting example of someone like yourself that was in the states and then has you know been excited about what's going on to come to come back home and 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 start companies. So we'll talk about that in a minute. And and I think when I was preparing for this, I was kind of giving some some thought back to um, so. When I was, uh, before starting FedTech, I, I, I was, um, uh, worked in Kenya actually for, uh, a, a, a few months. I had this amazing opportunity where another fellow Princeton alum gave me a chance to, um, kind of ride alongside as his assistant. He, he owned the, um, at the time, what was the largest fast food company in Kenya, right? Which is not an area that I, I anticipated wanting to work in. <laughs> and I don't know that I would necessarily work in it in the, in the long term, but it was a fascinating chance to sort of see, um, just, you know, a, a growing business in an emerging market, you know, in, in the developing world and how exciting that was. Like, I never think, I, I, I don't recall ever being more excited about the process of starting companies than when I was, was interacting, you know, in this case in Kenya with some of the ingenuity, you know, of, of entrepreneurs there. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, what you've seen, you know, in, in, in a, obviously not an African emerging market, but in, in Nepal, in terms of the ingenuity of, of entrepreneurs, what you've noticed about the ecosystem and, and what, what, you know, you think is, uh, uh, exciting or, or, or challenging, you know, on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. I think been very thoughtful question. Um, there's also something I've been trying to figure out both like you know, academically through the work I do and, um, experience wise. Right. So. On the spectrum, Nepal is a very uh, pre-frontier market, uh, not even a frontier, right? So when I say pre-frontier, the institutions are weak, very early stage, sort of like early stage in terms of like you know, very nascent uh, companies in terms of their growth stage, uh, especially in tech. Uh, so Kenya is actually one of a very vibrant country, like, you know, uh, uh, in, in Africa, uh, Rwanda is another. So Africa is increasing, like, you know, getting more like, prominence and Nepal somewhere falls in the spectrum of say uh, if I have to put Nepali tech ecosystem uh, on a spectrum so starting with the very mature system of Silicon Valley 
uh, maybe China would fall somewhere in between Europe, right? Singapore, a bit like, you know, emerging. And there's India. And after like all of that comes Nepal and uh, a lot of countries in Africa. So falls in that uh, ecosystem. Hmm. Uh, so few few characteristics, you know, that we see in Nepali market uh, that's prominent. Uh, I, I think as we start to dissect, uh, like it's important to know the characteristics, right? So we government institutions, uh, but strong uh, informal social norms, right? And a lot of innovations happen in this uh, sort of uh, social and political economic constraints. What I mean by that is uh, a lot of times, uh, so how this manifests in terms of innovation is say, you want to build a company, you want to hire someone, right? How do you do that? Not a lot of like formal information out there in the market, right? So a lot of time, your network plays a big factor, right? Like uh, who you know, who you connect to, how do you triangulate the information? Who do you know in the government? Because red team can really eat a lot of your time and effort. But oh. if you happen to know people, right? Then it can also, you can also not, I'm not talking about corruption or anything, but it's just like, you know, knowing people uh, really can expedite the process, both in businesses and in dealings with red tape. So innovation comes out of that, right? Comes out the informality, but within the larger ecosystem country constraints. What, what are some common businesses? I mean, if you, if you are an entrepreneur with an idea, how hard is it to get going? What, what kind of resources are available? Yeah, so uh, largely, largely, <laughs> uh, but it's as sad as to say, uh, Nepal has, you know, the country identifies uh, like almost two dozen uh, key exports of the country sectors and migration delivery is one of them, right? So that's the state. But if you talk of the large economy, yeah, in terms of private sector entrepreneurs, right? Health and education is big in the country. Uh, education is largely privatized, so it's healthcare. Uh, increasingly, we're starting to take because the initial upfront capital investment is low, usually, right? I'm not talking about um, tech sectors with deep R&D, like, you know, that required, like, those sort of manpower and skills and ecosystem is not available in Nepal. But think of something as uh, basic software app development, basic data, like, you know, for which you need a room, uh, computer, and, like, uh, human brain power, right? So those sort of uh, tech companies are starting to emerge. But other than that, uh, hydropower is also big in the country. Nepal is starting to export to India, like, you know, talks of exporting hydropower to Bangladesh. Uh, so generally, health education is there. Migration is a big factor. Uh, and then after energy comes the, like, you know, tech center is slowly starting to emerge. Yeah, well, it's interesting. And I think in some ways, um, when I when I talk to folks like yourself, I get more appreciation for how much opportunity there is in the U.S. to start a kind of technology-based, highly differentiated company, you know, where, where, where um, even, you know, one of the things that we had talked about previously, Asmad, was, was that there's not a lot of uh, patenting, right, in, in Nepal. So that creates, you know, just a vacuum where even if you look at, you know, the idea of kind of turning research into to, to products and into companies, which is kind of the world that we live in, it just is so much harder, right, than like we, we have in the U.S., you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of inventions that are, are made every year and, and end up getting patented and turn into licenses and, and new products. Um, so in some ways, yeah, it, 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 it reinforces, like, I, I, I get very excited, like if there are ways to maybe take some of that U S infrastructure from a research standpoint, 
and, and marry that with some of the ingenuity of the entrepreneurs in the developing world. That, that to me is, is a, a cool idea. I don't, we haven't totally figured out how to do it yet, but. Yeah, no, great. Uh, I guess like uh, one of the key factors, like, you know, innovation happens in an ecosystem as you very much know, right? Like working in deep tech space and innovation, I guess there's, there's certain things an individual can do and there's certain things an ecosystem does. And in a place like the US where there's a very solid, robust innovation, you know, it's much easier for individuals. What I've seen in Nepal is and basically for a lot of uh, pre-frontier markets, right? Uh, there's so much onus on individual. So if you succeed, sometimes it's big despite of the system, right? Not because <laughs> there's, yeah. a, there's an iron in that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell, tell us a little bit. I mean, so, so kind of backing up even, you know, again, like, um, we, we were at Princeton in different times. I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to reveal, I'm, I'm a, a tad older than you, um, <laughs> but, uh, what, um, what's your experience? I mean, so what, what brought you over and then, and then being, um, at a place like Princeton, which, you know, is, is definitely, it's, it's a wonderful environment. It's definitely a high pressure environment. Um, I'm, I'm curious, yeah, if you sort of take us back to the, the college years, so to speak, maybe, um, keeping it, uh, you know, we, you, you can, you can skip over the keg stand stories, but, but uh, tell us some other, you know, experiences you had in college. Yeah. So briefly, I think like, you know, I come from, uh, so even ending up in Princeton was a uh, luck. I was trying to go to engineering schools in, in India and that required me to take SATs. That landed me in like a U.S. institution, government institution, you know, I learned the border scholarship for underprivileged kids that helps you apply to U.S. So. The deadline was next day. I learned about it today. So all that's, that's a story for another time, right? So luckily I got in the program. First time I hear about Princeton, right? <laughs> I think I might like, so this is the year. I had no intention until I graduated from high school to be in college. Fast forward a year, uh, through a lot of like, you know, practice and a lot of luck also uh, end up in Princeton. So I, I think college was really interesting uh, in that, it really oh, that kind of of so you, you literally you found out about a scholarship program and then you were able to so basically one one day difference if you would have missed that might have changed yeah. the whole direction of <laughs> really really like i i end up in the institution is called education usa so u.s government body that uh, helps students apply to u.s colleges so they had uh i was very lucky that they had just opened this scholarship called opportunity funding that year uh, it was first, like, you know, it was their uh, pilot year. I learned about it today. Uh, I didn't have computer at home back then. There's load sharing, we didn't have power, like, in supplies and everything. So I had to go to a place where they helped me type that. So there's a, there's an entire story. Luckily, I get the program. I was planned to go to engineering school in Nepal, uh, sort of like competitive, right? But then I said, okay, sometimes in life, you take risk. Looking back, there was a huge risk, like not accepting an offer in Nepali college, you know? And then uh, start like studying as it is. So that was a huge reason. So back like when I was in my teenage years. <laughs> well, this is not me. This is uh, I think you're 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 humbly um, kind of moving through the story. But it's this is uh, you know an exceptional uh, uh, kind of achievement to to go to Princeton. You know with um, and 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 I'm I'm just happy to hear. I mean, it's a good example of a U.S. government program working really well. You know, and and kind of creating something that is. You know, I think a lot of students, uh, you know, have uh, uh, thousands of dollars of SAT help, you know, and, and uh, consultants that help them write their Princeton essays and all of that. And you, you, you came in through a very different route that you're, uh, you're being humble about, but it's, it's, it's very special. 
No, thank you. And I have to, I do have to support the years next years. They have supported me all throughout. Uh, from being in college, being in Princeton, or I was on scholarship, right? So I guess, I guess, yeah. I'm very also thankful and lucky because uh, there's me, but there's all the support, right? My parents, you know, who really worked hard. Uh, my professors and the entire, like, you know, Princeton as an institution was amazing. It just, like, you know, opened the world to me, got to travel around the world, really explore academically, personally, spiritually, professionally. Um, and even when I came back, like, you know, when I was uh, in Nepal, I was extremely lucky to have this uh, sort of champions around me, you know, like, who are not visible, but who are always there to help. So also have to thank that. When, <laughs> when you got over, had you been to the U.S. before or was that... Uh, first time, first time on a plane, right? When I came to US, I was lost. Uh, first time outside the country, so a lot of new experience. I, I was lost, <laughs> like you know, when I came to the airport in, uh, uh, I think it was in New York. Uh, yeah, yeah, for, yeah, for, yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. So, so walk us through, like, what what were the you know, the, those first few weeks of? You know, I remember, like, so I. I was a competitive athlete. I was, you know, the number one fencer in the, in the U S. So I, I had, you know, I was definitely not fully at, at Princeton for my, um, my brain power, you know, as, as much as my, my athletic prowess. So I remember just the adjustment that I had to make, you know, of, of what it took to really keep up. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, I mean, how, how were your first, you know, weeks and months when you got onto campus? Yeah. So I was very lucky. Like almost there's a matter of luck involved. So. I had to come to U.S. a couple of days earlier, didn't have a housing, and I couldn't afford like $200 hotel room, right? So someone who interviewed me, say, Bonsky, which uh, I still keep in touch with him, class of, uh, you, you know, uh, I won't say the exact wrong class, yes, I don't want to mess up. But anyway, so, you know, like, uh, way older, he's very kind, and he's apparently sends out an email to this Princeton local listener saying this, hey, to this guy from Nepal is someone willing to host him. So I called a guy called uh, John, uh, John Bayer, uh, class of 2006, computer science. He uh, he hosts me, right? He said, like, hey, I'm willing to host. And so happens that, you know, so first time I land in the U.S., I don't know anything. I go to John's office, you know, uh, haven't with the person once. And turns out, he gives me a tour of the campus and really pretty, very different from Nepal. Turns out uh, he lived in the same room in Rockville College. So in Princeton, there are six colleges, same college, like within and same dorm room, right? So like, oh, this is a matter of luck, room number 30 or 31, you know? So uh -huh. I, I was a Rocky uh, person. Yeah. When I was, when I was uh, early on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Which, which, uh, which uh, building? Uh, Holder, Holder Hall. <laughs> Me too. 31. Yeah, cool. <laughs> it got nicer when you were there. Yeah. They, I think they, they redid the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but wow, that's okay. Small okay. world. So, yeah, very small India. So anyway, so, and I tell the story because uh, there's a lot of matter of luck, but uh, John was like, you know, he and his family kind of adopted me and they became host families. I used to celebrate like, you know, my vacations with them. We also got to, uh, you know, got in John's wedding. I still keep in touch with him. So anyway, so that opened up one part with each my transition over the course of four years, right? Very lucky to have no Nepali on campus, so that really meant I had to blend it in a lot of ways. So that was one cultural part. The second part was academic, which I realized, although I did well in tests and everything, I wasn't prepared, you know. So I didn't know I had to select classes <laughs> until like a few days before, and I saw one of my friends, you know, 
uh, the friend who actually came to Nepal a couple of months ago is from Germany. So he was picking classes and I was like, oh, read, like, you know, I didn't know I had to pick classes <laughs> until the day before, right? So I scrambled. Uh, but anyway, so a lot of like, you know, learning, my English wasn't great. So something like, you know, being fluent was also a big part. Academic is very different from colloquial. So cultural adjustment was huge. Academic adjustment was huge, you know, because, uh, but over the course of years, first year was difficult, but I really learned to use the resources, drive and I think last uh, two, three years was really amazing. But said that, uh, I learned how to not pull all-nighters, you know, after a year, uh, not how to get the <laughs> yeah. work sustainably. Oh so my goodness, yeah, I wanted so much. It's also been, uh, you said you're a fencer, I had a fencer friend and that life is something, uh, it's just like so much admiration. I don't know how they, <laughs> how they <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. it was, it was just such a different experience. Like for, so I, I, in high school, you know, I like did okay, but also spent a lot of my evenings either fencing or watching, you know, the Simpsons and, you know, uh, it was a different experience when like everybody, you know, for us, at least we would get done with, uh, practice at six 30, go eat, eat really fast. And then everybody heads to the library and, and plugs in, you know, till one or 2 AM studying. And I was just like, it was, it was shocking. And, and that level of preparation and the, you know, just the, how, how, um, you know, talented folks were, it took a while to, and it sounds like you had a similar experience, right? But, but you, you catch up, right? It, it, you kind of like all things kind of pick up the the pace and, um, and for you, did, if, am I remember correctly that you, you ended up actually winning an award for your, your senior thesis? Oh, uh, no, I, I got a couple of grants to do senior thesis, uh, like, you know, but award, like that part I missed, but upon graduation, so I don't know, there's always matter of luck. Uh, so my final year, there was a fellowship called Allman in honor of a professor, you know, who used to teach there. So they had opened up a fellowship called the Allman and it allowed you to design your own international project for the people in Woodrow Wilson, a competitive grant, but again, become very lucky. Well, the inaugural, the only undergrad who received that award, you know, like first year. Uh, so <laughs> graduation, well, I, well, I became very lucky. Oh, and, yeah, no, it's great. I mean, it's a huge, uh, for those of you that don't um, thankfully know about the, the Princeton senior thesis process. So so Princeton has, I think, the somewhat unique distinction of they, they, they only let you graduate after you write a 100-page um, paper called the senior thesis that typically takes you all a year. Um, it's not unusual for people that are, you know, in their sixties and seventies that are, that still have nightmares about their, their senior thesis, uh, you know, and, and not turning it in on time, you know, and not graduating and all of that, that stuff. So, um, uh, yeah, really neat that you were, uh, I mean, that, that's a big deal to get selected for a fellowship like that. Um, so I guess fast forwarding a little last minute yet. So tell us, you know, what, when did you, so, so you left Princeton, when did the entrepreneurial bug start to to bite you, you know, what was that process like, um, in terms of when did you realize that you wanted to do something and, and especially, and, and especially build a company in Nepal? Yeah, I think we have three stages to it, Ben. It's like before my Princeton experience while in Princeton and after that, right? So as I said, before my Princeton experience briefly was like, my dad was also a migrant worker outside Nepal. So growing up, I see, I saw, right? Like people, him, like largely like family, like, okay, living in Nepal, right? For jobs outside Nepal. In Princeton, my senior thesis was on migration in Nepal, you know, I took class on migration, class on economics, to try to get sense of why people migrate, right? So among many things, I found, oh, like, what reasons people migrate among many things is uh, sorts of opportunities and jobs. So that was the realization part. 
third part was, okay, then come the time of graduation fellowship, I was like, okay, what can, let me understand this more and what can I do to create jobs, you know? So that was the uh, understanding. So very lucky, got this fellowship, came back to Nepal, largely worked in rural entrepreneurship because in Nepal, maybe like 60, 70% people live in urban areas, rest of them in rural. But that's the official stat. But a lot of people actually like, you know, beyond two major cities where there's five or six million people, more than 20 million live in rural, same rural part, right? So I traveled extensively around one third districts of Nepal, all on buses, public transport, like someone's hike for five hours, you know, to get to place and really listen to people's stories, right? Like, hey, what sure. do you do? What do you like, you know, like if you have migrated, almost every household has person who has migrated. So really like go to explore Nepal that year. What, what, did, what did you learn? I mean, what, what, were, what were some of the, the stories that you heard? Yeah, so a lot of stories were about, uh, I, I guess, like, you know, you dig down and uh, some of them, some of the people I talked to were truck drivers, you know, were uh, basically on drugs, driving truck for like 48, like, you know, more than three days in India. And they would say, hey, like, you know, uh, basically it comes down to income a lot of times, right? So there's one. I also noticed there's a social aspect of migration, right? So it's like, especially for young people, uh, if you have everyone around you, you know, your friends, your colleagues, everyone around you migrating. So that's also a push factor, especially starting to see that in terms of student migration outside Nepal. Uh, Australia has the third largest, you know, uh, Nepali migrant student population after India and China. U.S. is also uh, the Nepali migrant population in U.S. in terms of students, right? It's the twelfth largest, you know. Uh, so pretty big uh, migration phenomenon. So one is like the, what I did academically kind of verified, right? Okay, like you really need to create jobs, be it in rural areas, rural, be it in Nepal, and some major, major reason people migrate. The story depends, like, you know, it varies, uh, but economic opportunity came at the core. So that really allowed, like, you know, uh, pushed me to like say, hey, like, I've been in the US, right? Learned about it. I've been in Nepal. Let me explore my neighbors, right? You know, see what's happening. And that pushed me to the China part where I did a degree in economics and management. Uh, but I, I said like, okay, I've had experience in nonprofit. I've had experience academically, like, you know, uh, let me work on the tech side. And this is when I started to really pivot in the tech entrepreneurship scene, working at a ride-sharing company in China. Which, which is like, uh, you worked at basically the Uber equivalent in, in China, right? Yeah, yes. it's called Didi Chuxing. At that point, it was like the third largest startup in the world, I think, you know. Uh, it acquired Uber, so did like 30 million rides a day. Pretty big. Uh, because I didn't code, but I want to be in tech. So I figured, hey, like, you know, using my skills, business and marketing was a way, you know, which allowed me to see that tech scene in China. And being at the heart of China's uh, uh, Silicon Valley allowed me to at least get a glimpse of that experience, right? So as I was doing and that... And share, share a little bit about that aspect, yeah. So because I think for a yeah. lot of listeners, it's like, okay, the idea of being... Uh, an employee at, you know, a Chinese kind of rocket ship to the moon type of startup is, is tough at least, yeah, at least for me to envision what that's like. I mean, what is it? What was the experience? What were the days like there? Yeah. So it was a hyper growth startup. Like Didi started in like early 2000s. And by the time I was there, I was, my car had like 13,000 something. So as if I was the like 13,000 employee, you know, so all the like grew really rapidly. I was the English division part, which is kind of small. And something uh, they call in China is called uh, GGL, like, you know, 007. It's called uh, 
the 007 culture is basically you work seven days a week <laughs> from midnight to midnight. <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay. so it's actually called 996. It's like nine to nine, six days a week. But I had a friend who said that it's not 996, it's 007. <laughs> so the James Bond. But basically, uh, the world start like, you know, like uh, a lot of young people, right? Uh, in the tech sector, a lot of like, you know, foreigners are not, not common for foreigners to be in Chinese tech companies. Uh, unless we speak very fluent Chinese. I was lucky that, you know, although I spoke some Chinese, like I, I got a part in the company, uh, but very intense, like the work start late, uh, but a lot of, I think, drive, you know, uh, in a lot oh, yeah, of Yeah, I mean, for, right? for 12 hour days, every day, six days a week was, was, was common. Yeah, it was very common. And um, there's also one of the factor for me realizing that, hey, it is kind of actually like, uh, at least I can speak of the company that I worked in, not everyone, but I also saw if as a human being, if you are like, you know, uh, working 12 hours a day, a lot of your hours aren't also very productive, right? So I also saw a lot of like, you know, uh, there's a culture of like, you know, showing your face, not living before your boss. So usually uh, maybe the actual productive hours would be two, three, four, five hours. And then a lot of time, it's just like this screen time, right? And that really allowed me to see the distinction between uh, what actually happens and what's the facade. Like, and I'm not saying that that was the entire, like the institution operation, but at least what from what I hear in a lot of companies, is, that's also very common, right? Appearing to yeah. be productive versus actually being productive and how the resources aren't actually being spent in a company, which is also very different, right? Just because you have a lot of funding doesn't mean you're spending the resources in the best possible way. So got to see a lot of nuances, made a lot of friends, really saw the system from within. Well, it, it, it's fascinating. Like I, I can sort of see both sides of the coin in terms of even, and I've heard that about, you know, China and Indian startups, you know, how hard people work and that it's yeah burnout and, and the negative parts of that experience are, are profound. So it's sort of one side of the coin, right. Of, um, but also. What's interesting, I think, in the U.S. is sometimes you you maybe have a little bit of an underestimation of what it takes to compete, you know, with with some of that level of commitment um, where you always want your hours to be productive. Right. So if you're only having two or three productive hours out of a 12 hour day, that's that's not good. But um, I always try to stress, especially to sort of first time entrepreneurs, just the whole world wants you to wants you to fail as an entrepreneur. Right. And, I, and I'm saying I'm exaggerating, but like how hard you have to push in order to be successful, you know, on a, on a, an early team that's, that's trying to create a new product into the market. And if you're, you know, kind of, um, leaving at, you know, noon on a Friday to go, you know, do whatever you want to do. There's somebody on the other side of the world that's building a similar product that literally is, is a hundred percent, you know, committed maybe at the detriment to their, their own, you know, life and sanity, but it's, it's just an interesting, uh, yeah, you know, observation that I've had. No, true, Ben. I think, uh, like, Ben, uh, very much rightly pointed. So there's that part, but the other part is like, you know, the piece of innovation which I saw, right? Um, so in 2017, I saw like, you know, someone was begging in Beijing uh, using a QR code, right? And it was a joke at that point. It's like, you know, where does a beggar <laughs> put a QR code? Like, nothing, you know? So that's an analogy to which, to the extent to which technology has been to society, you know. And I had friends working in the tech ecosystem. Uh, 
in a large corporate at some point, like, you know, it becomes different, but especially in early stages, right? Uh, if a founder, founding team, the team is, you know, like when it's small, to, to not push with passion. Uh, and even in a large startup, meaning startup is a big thing, right? There's so many products, there's constant competitors, right? If you're not constantly pushing the boundaries, uh, it's the hard work. Then in a market like China, you said to like, you know, go down and in any place of the world. Now the truly products are becoming global, right? Uh, in any markets, you know, there's so much funding available, so much competition. And without the hard work part, I think any venture, any team, even within a large company, I, I guess uh, it's really like ultimately what you put is energy, you know, in a team. And if you don't do that. Well, yeah, yeah. It's hard to, hard to win. Yeah. Um, well, and, and tell us kind of just so. So you're in China, you obviously see the good and the bad of, of, you know, a, a major, um, startup there. And then, and then I know you started, you know, multiple companies now on your own. Like what, what did you apply and what did you learn and, and kind of what, what did, what, what went well or what, what, what did not go as well, you know, for you as an entrepreneur? Yeah. So uh, I, I guess my journey was a bit, a bit, uh, maybe typical, atypical, right? So first I started working in the entrepreneurship ecosystem building thing, like, uh, in a very like uh, disadvantaged part of Nepal with extremely low resources, a lot of people migrate to so very underfunded places. Right, I started experience with that. I ran a tech company right uh, for a year, so that really allowed me to see the ecosystem part and running a company part. You know, a company which is pretty much doing well, established like you know not a big team but sizable team, just running for like you know almost a decade. So that really allowed me to. Uh, get an outsider view. So last uh, couple of years, I've been trying to like invest, trying to few ventures. So one of the key learning was, especially in starting a company, right? There's funding, there's everything. One key lesson I took was the team you build, the people you hire is extremely critical. Can emphasize that more is not the product, <laughs> it's not the service, right? It's the people, you know, because the product we might bring in the market will change. You can't have the same product, like, you know, which you, you build a prototype or MVP, right? But it's sure. the people in your team and the collective vision, you know. Of course, there's the funding part, there's the other part, right? Uh, but I realized having right team, like, you know, and the persistency and grit, uh, sometimes is very important than, like, you know, having... What, and what, was that harder to find in in Nepal? I mean, where, where, do, you, where do you find... Because I think the... It's immensely hard, yeah, to start a, a great company by yourself. You need you need co, uh, kind of early stage employees, co founders, whatever you want to think of it as. And and um, hard, I, I imagine that it might might be harder to find that in Kathmandu than in uh, you know San Francisco. Yeah, so I guess uh, this matter of uh, serendipity in that, and matter of like you know uh, using a judgment both. So one example was, uh, it's kind of an entrepreneurship example, right? I had to build uh, one of the things I did when I came back to Nepal was establish a case writing center from scratch at established business school. So just basically building a new center, the product would be writing cases, right? So basically starting something from scratch. And there, one of my co-founders was like, you know, uh, although not with the title, but was one, actually one of the students. I started on my own, right? with the support of the college uh, met someone by serendipity you know came as an intern but over the course of one year like he got really like you know, he was trained well and there was a point where I felt like okay I could pretty much lay my hands off and you know uh, the training and case writing part would do so 
that part of like serendipity, but a lot of, I think, uh, investments in relationship. That's also very crucial, right? In founding a founder and the trust factor, you know. So that's, oh, yeah. that's one modality I leveraged. The second part was uh, actually working with people you know or like, you know, have a build a common norm or with whom you share values and share vision, right? So last uh, startup I did was Vikasa Tech. Uh, so Vikasa Tech actually was like, you know, uh, it's people I met through uh, different, like, you know, being in Kathmandu, same social circles. Other investors, and I was actually leading the operations on a day-to-day basis, right? So there, it was a group of people who really had the same vision, and also uh, our uh, the thing we brought to the table complemented, right? So I was doing more on the operation side; they were doing the investments and also opening the network. So kind of. Well, and what was the product like? What what did what, what were you actually selling? Uh, because I think we're doing this uh, software outsourcing, you know, so. It, Trying a different model in that uh, usually software outsourcing, you have your own in-house team, like, you know, uh, pitch the clients outside. In Tikasa, we did a different approach in that we're trying to build a B2B aggregator. You know, so <clears throat> rather than have our own in-house team, uh, work with existing tech companies. And the ecosystem is fragmented. So just to get like, you know, three tech companies in the same platform uh, was a challenge. Not, you know, so different uh, problem solving in that part. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, well, definitely, you know, big, big market, obviously. Yeah. Um, well, I guess just, yeah, thanks, Osman, you know, all, all, all fascinating stories. And I guess, you know, sort of to to finish a little bit and put a fire point on some of what we discussed, if, if you know, we always ask kind of the guests on this podcast to to offer some advice, you know, to our community. Um, and I would say, I mean, maybe, maybe you know, if you had uh, two or three things that you'd advise, you know, a young entrepreneur, uh, on entering, you know, an emerging market, you know, as, as, as an entrepreneur, what would you sort of say, what would you, you tell somebody over, you know, coffee if you were talking to them? Yeah. Um, so I guess one thing is, uh, there's so much, I think, uh, usually focus on like, you know, uh, being and, uh, even the term, like being an entrepreneur, right? So you can, first I'd urge people to even think of entrepreneurship in a very broad way. Entrepreneurship doesn't mean you have to start your own like company, like, because sometimes that can also mean liability, right? Entrepreneurship, in my thing, means uh, doing the best you can, leveraging the resources you have around you. And that means entrepreneurship can happen like within your community, within your team. So if you're already, say, uh, working in a firm, you can be an entrepreneur, you can be an entrepreneur in that sense, right? So I, I guess like I urge young people, or even like people generally, to broaden the horizon of entrepreneurship. It doesn't mean you have to start a new company. It can be starting a new wing. It can be starting a new service, right? So there's so many ways to think. So that's one. Second uh, thing is building team relationship, right? Of course, there's product, there's service, but what you ultimately do is there's no defined hours, right? So, you know, sometimes when I stay because I take and others, I think of calls at like around close to midnight in Nepal, right? The short day tortoise, like, you know, so many erratic hours you You'd work on the weekend and actually you enjoy that part, right? So I guess uh, it can take a toll on, I think, your personal life and everything, but learning to balance that, you know, and really enjoying what you do. I don't say that you'll enjoy everything you do, but it doesn't. it's not like, you know, a lot of times I think it's glorified. You know, maybe you speak somewhere as a founder, the titles are interesting, but a lot of things you do are not enjoyable also, and you have to enjoy that, right? Oh, writing a contract, you know, 
talking to people, talking to the finance guy, right? Making sure the taxes are filed, you know, <laughs> making sure like you don't, you don't fines or even like sometimes doing the basic things, you know, that you can't hide, hide and like someone help, extra help for, right? So I think learning to enjoy the process is key. So first would be, I think, rethink the concept of entrepreneurship. Second thing is learning to enjoy the process. Um, and third thing is, I think, persistency for which team is important. Yes, there's an urge, especially in the early stages, meaning at some point you realize, okay, you need team, right? A person, no matter how great, awesome you are, you can build a website on your own, but if you hire, a, have a, someone like you take, like, you know, have a tech co-founder, for instance, if you're not one, maybe you can expedite the process, uh, learn to chill with the team, right? team is extreme and they, they also give you momentum and energy because a lot of times uh, you don't know where you're headed, right? Sure. Uh, so that means you point. need to have an environment around you who constantly champion. That means colleagues because you'll be spending more time with them <laughs> than your family. <laughs> <laughs> certainly is, can, yeah, certainly true, yeah. Um, well, and, and even uh, talking about putting in the late hours, so we're, we're about uh, approaching 11 a.m. here on the East Coast and what, what time is it in Catman do right now? Uh, 8.40, so quarter to nine. Oh, okay. So we will, um, yeah, let you get on to your, 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 the rest of your evening, which hopefully involves some sleep. But Asbud, yeah, thank you so much for um, your time and perspective here today. You know, congrats on, yeah, what you've been able to achieve. And, and I really just enjoyed immensely hearing uh, your personal story. And uh, we'll leave it there. But uh, thanks again. Yeah, thank you, Ben. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for this space to reflect. Uh, and yeah, uh, really thanks to the team also behind the scene. Really put this together. Thank you.